What we mustn't do is get hung up on the percentages. It's a case of making sure that we have a blend of training and progression that starts to improve the intensity and the volume that we do. That Triathlon Show, episode 80. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Professor John Brewer, author of the books Run Smart and Running Science, Revealing the Science of Peak Performance. In the interview, we'll cover some of the most commonly discussed topics in running and what science has shown to be true about them and not true, including running form, the best way to train with volume and intensity distributions and so on, how weight and age affect running performance, recovery requirements after different types of runs, and lots more. But first, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They offer electrolyte drinks in different strengths of sodium concentration because the amount of sodium that you lose in endurance sports depends on two factors. First, the total amount that you sweat, and second, the concentration of sodium within that sweat. And just knowing one of the two isn't enough to make sure that you cover your sodium losses. You really need to know both. And especially in long events, this may cost you a lot of time if you don't. One research study found that those athletes that adequately replaced sodium finished 26 minutes faster in a half-distance triathlon compared to those who didn't. So to find out your sweat sodium or sorry your sodium needs and your electrolyte needs go to precisionhydration.com and take their free sweat test where you'll get a good estimate for your sweat amount and your sweat sodium concentration so that you have both of those pieces of the puzzle covered and this will allow you to uh, to put together or actually you'll get from that sweat test your personal hydration strategy and if you end up buying any precision hydration products their electrolyte drinks or other things then use the discount code that triathlon show all one word all caps for 15 percent off now a little bit more about john before we start he is a professor of applied sports science at saint mary's university in the united kingdom he has a long and illustrious career in both academia and in the sports industry. Among other merits, he was a chair of the British Handball Association during the London 2012 Olympics and of the British Ski and Snowboard during the 2014 Sochi Olympics. He is also a board member of UK Anti-Doping and he is an experienced recreational runner himself and has completed the London Marathon 19 times. So, please welcome to the show, John Brewer. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, John. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, it's uh, really good to have you. I was uh, reading some reviews of your book, Running Science, and there's a website called uh, PhD Runner, which, uh, which I read and, and 
on that review, it said that Running Science is by far and away one of the best running books I've read. I found the book so engaging I couldn't put it down and read it from cover to cover in one sitting. And Running Science is, uh, as the listeners may have guessed, your book, one of your books. You have another one, but we will focus mainly on Running Science and then at the end of the interview talk a bit about Run Smart. But uh, can you tell us what is Running Science about? How is the book structured and who should read it? Great question. Uh, I was asked to edit Run Science and to also contribute some of the chapters to it. And I think for me, it encapsulates everything that I'm passionate about as both a scientist and a runner. And that is to take the latest cutting edge science and write about it and translate it into terms that your everyday runner can understand and really importantly, Michael, can make use of so that they can get those extra little few seconds off their running performance and recover better and just generally improve as a runner. So it's not a really high-tech science book. At the same time, it's not a beginner's manual. It's something that takes the science and really puts it in, in terms that means that runners can understand what we're saying, they can understand the basics of science. And in doing that, I was asked to choose the contributors, the people who've written some of the chapters. And I know, certainly in the UK, who many of the best practitioners are out there, many of the best applied sports scientists, and got them to write the chapters that have helped to make the book the success that, it, that it's been. Yeah, it's funny. We very recently had uh, a similar kind of uh, book or interview about a book called Cycling Science with Stephen Chung. So so these uh, are very timely, these, these interviews, and, and it was the exact same concept for that book. And the way that you structured running running science, as you say, in different chapters with different questions is um, something that we can use in this interview to form the basis of our discussion and just answer some of the most relevant topics for running and uh, especially as it pertains to triathletes. One of the first things that I want to get into is running form and, and technique and the biomechanics of running. What do we really know about it from science and, and what don't we know about it equally importantly? I think I always start from the basis that the human body is designed to run. We used to have to run many thousands of years ago to avoid being prey or to be caught by animals that were trying to catch us and indeed to catch our food. So running is part of our daily lives. It's what the human body is designed to do along with walking. The problem is that for many people, society has evolved with cars, with remote controls, uh, with trains and so on, which have actually taken running out of society. So what I tend to say is let people run naturally, let people run in a way that suits them, because we're all built slightly differently. We have different anatomical joints, different bone lengths and so on. And quite often, the person who might look the most ungainly is actually quite good at running. They're very economical and they've evolved a running style that suits them. So whilst I think as a coach, as a scientist, it's possible to sometimes um, rule out or to coach better technique and to rule out some really obvious problems, there is a danger that if you try and tinker too much and make finite adjustments just because something may then look aesthetically a little bit more pleasing, you're actually in danger of really doing more harm than good. So my main um, comment with style is to let people run in a way that suits them, let people run in a way that really maximises their anatomical physique, it makes them as economical as possible, don't tinker too much, but if you do see an obvious problem, then of course go in and try and try and coach that out. 
But on the whole, we are designed to run. It's important we let people run freely in a, in a way that suits them. What are some of those obvious problems that, that may come up? I think we have to stating the obvious, but when you run, you, you move in a forward direction. And every movement that is counter to that, so perhaps arms swinging across the, je- the chest, is causing a momentum that is in the wrong direction. It causes forces in the wrong direction. And that means that you have to use more energy to go in the direction that you want to go. So it's making sure that everything is aligned, that the arms, the legs, the head, the trunk are all moving in the same direction. I think there's also a tendency to look at the point of impact, the foot. And we know from scientific studies that two, three, four times body weight is going through the foot and the lower body every time the foot hits the ground. Now, again, it's it's quite easy to look at that, to do treadmill analysis, gait analysis, and try and work out the best point of impact. And I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that you have forefoot runners who tend to land on the front of the foot, rear foot runners who tend to land on the heel and then pivot forwards. There is an increasing body of thought, that is, which is that we should land more in the forefoot manner as we're running. And that's why we've seen barefoot running minimalist shoes come into the running market. On the other hand, there are also those who say actually landing on the heel, which is the more solid and stable part of the foot, is the best way then gently pivot forward. I think what you need to do is to look at an individual, at the same time, take more of a holistic view and say, well, if we're looking at how they run, also let's bear in mind their experience, how many years they've spent running, how much have they developed the strength and conditioning within the bones, the tendons, the ligaments to absorb different types of foot impact. And only then perhaps prescribe some changes, because if you've got inexperienced runners and you try to prescribe changing too quickly. So for example, you try to turn them from a, a, a rear foot runner into a forefoot runner, there is always a danger that you might create an injury. So it's looking at style, perhaps being aware of what might be better for a person, but also before you make a, a, a wide reaching change or recommendation for a change, you bear in mind their experience, the amount of strength, conditioning and so on that they will have built up because then they're more able to withstand and try some of the changes that you might want to put into place. When you mentioned there a couple of times uh, about both running form and uh, the foot strike, uh, what what you think is that your interpretation of the current body of evidence, or what? How clear is it? How much science is there on these topics on running form, and specifically on on how to strike the foot as well? Can we say that we know something, or is it just unclear and up for interpretation? What's the status there? I'm afraid, even even as a scientist, I'm tempted to say it's fairly unclear. I think there are studies that suggest that forefoot running can be more economical, it can be better. At the same time, there are also medical studies that suggest that you might be more predisposed to injury if you land on the forefoot. Um, There are biomechanical studies that show that uh, a gentle pivot forward from the heel to the forefoot uh, is actually a very economical way of running and you are more protected by landing on, on the heel. That said, you're then putting forces from the heel up through to the, the tibia and fibula in the lower leg, and perhaps at more risk of stress fracture. So I think there is no simple answer. The scientific evidence sways depending on what your your genuine passion and point of view often is. Um, it's really a case of working out what suits you and suits your experience and your running style. And I would never prevent somebody from trying a different type of running style. But very often, if that style starts to feel awkward and uncomfortable, it's the body telling you that it's not quite right. And although I'm a scientist, I will also say very strongly and have them in the book, that it's important that you listen to your body 
and you react to what your body is telling you. And if something doesn't feel quite right, then the likelihood is that it isn't right for you. And it's best to stick with, with what's been tried and tested. Yeah, it's a traditional case of everybody is an N equals one experiment. And yeah. especially in this case, when it seems that the current uh, evidence is clear as mud. Uh, so let's move on to running training and how to structure run training. What do we know about that? There are studies on things like intensity distributions and how much volume people should run. But, but what do we know there? Is there, is there any, any indications as for what is effective running training? Or is it uh, clear as mud in this case as well? Okay, let, let's start from, in a sense, what is the obvious, which is that you, you mustn't do too much and if, you, if you're starting from scratch. So there is always a trade-off between intensity and volume. And it's important that people don't get carried away and do high volume, high intensity training at the start of a training program. So the science would show that building a good aerobic base is absolutely critical. So that is the work that will build up your oxygen uptake, your VO2 max, and develop a capacity to take more oxygen from the air that goes into the lungs to the working muscles. That can really come from two types of training. It can come from the longer, slower distance running, but also from what has been termed threshold running, where you're running at a level where your body is producing lactic acid, but is able to uh, clear that lactic acid from the system at the same rate that it's being produced. So that's the sort of moderately high intensity work. That is bringing air and oxygen with the air into the lungs and conditioning the body to extract that oxygen, attach it to the hemoglobin through the heart, pump it around the bloodstream to the working muscles, where work goes on in the mitochondria in the muscle cell to produce energy. Now, the more you do that combination of aerobic training and the threshold training, the more you're likely to increase your oxygen uptake. And at the same time, once you've reached the ceiling beyond which your oxygen uptake won't go too much higher, you can then start to do more threshold work to improve your ability to sustain a higher percentage of maximum. So again, as an example, We know that when people are doing moderate intensity runs, should we say 10 kilometer runs, they're probably capable of running on the whole at around 80% of maximum. They can sustain a pace that's equivalent to 80% of their maximum oxygen uptake. But with training, although your VO2 max, your maximum oxygen uptake may not improve further, you may find that you can start to sustain 81, 82, 83% of maximum for that same distance. So That's the type of training where the body is becoming conditioned to, in a sense, living with the lactic acid that it's producing, with the hydrogen ions that are causing fatigue as well. You're training at that threshold and conditioning the body to cope with it when they're doing those shorter, faster races. So, okay, so it's interesting what you mentioned there about using threshold training to uh, to improve your your aerobic capacity because uh, we read a lot about using VO2 max training to to improve that. But uh, are there specific studies or evidence on on the use of threshold training for for that purpose? Yeah, there are studies that show a combination of both VO2 max and threshold training really do give you the in a sense the marginal gains for the for the least return, and I think. What we know from scientific studies is that the days where people thought that just doing mile upon mile, kilometer upon kilometer was going to be the best way of developing aerobic fitness have in a sense gone. And we know that once you've done an element of that to develop an aerobic base, you can focus on the shorter, higher higher intensity work where you're working at a much higher 
threshold, a much higher percentage of your VO2 max. Now, of course, those runs aren't easy. They, they require effort, they cause fatigue, they cause a bit of pain, um, but the benefits are very great because you're pushing your body to that threshold level and beyond, which really means that when it comes to racing, you have pushed the boundaries back, you've developed a higher oxygen uptake capacity, and you've developed an ability to tolerate lactic acid. So it's not all about lots of miles and lots of kilometers. It's about layering on top of that, the threshold work, the VO2 max work, that really starts to de develop oxygen uptake capacity and lactate tolerance ability uh, to go alongside it. Those are really important areas that come through hard work. And again, when it comes to the tolerance, um, work, you know, there's lots of studies around high intensity interval training, HIT. In many ways, HIT has been around a long, long time. It's a, it's a term that we give to interval training. So continuing on the discussion about uh, training, polarized training is a concept that uh, has been more and more prominent in uh, in research and in even in mainstream media recently. So what's what's your take on that? And where do you think that stands from a scientific point of view with evidence and so on today? And also, is it relevant for age group runners and triathletes or is it more for the very elite that can do a whole lot of volume? I think with polarized training, you've got a type of training that is very suitable to elite athletes. It's the type of work that they will benefit greatly from. It gives them those extra percentage improvements that um, the higher intensity work will, I suppose, provide them with that just doing the more aerobic work certainly won't. Do we apply it to, to the less elite? I think there are lessons that they can learn and it's certainly something that they can incorporate in their training. But for me, it's the blend. It's making sure that it's one part of an overall training program and not necessarily something that you do on a regular basis if you are aspiring to become elite. The, the difficulty that you have with all training programs is that, or with all individuals, is that as they train and improve, so of course their performance will improve as well. So it's taking that, in a sense, decision to upgrade your training from perhaps the more standard stuff that you've done to more polarized work, more high intensity interval training, uh, really in a sense transform your lifestyle in a way that will move you from what I would have termed recreational athlete into that elite athlete zone. So I would never say never to a particular technique, but I would say that if you start to do it, you do it gradually and build it into your training rather than start to make it a major part. I hope that makes sense. It's a case of building up gradually and building, getting the foundations in place before you take a leap to suddenly transform all that you do. Because if you do too much too soon or you embark on any different type of training too quickly, then there is always a risk of injury occurring. And whilst injury is an occupational hazard for many runners, um, it's something that you can avoid if you structure your training carefully and properly. Yeah, so so what I hear you say is that we shouldn't get hung up on percentages like 80% easy, 20% hard, or even 90-10 as um, it's in some places called with, with the polarized or in some studies they, they use that sort of distribution and, and just be be sensible and and i guess that many normal everyday runners and triathletes their distribution of hard to easy is actually much bigger than that 80 20 and 90 10 just because the volume is so much lower that they if they want to get one quality run in and then the other run is easy for a triathlete doing two runs per week then obviously you can't get up to 
90 versus 10 percent easy versus hard just because you have two runs per week to play with and if you want that quality run then it's not possible but uh, but then again if you want to go the polarized route you want to increase the volume but that can be dangerous as well so uh yeah i think i think that's kind of what you were saying am i right it is but what i'm really big on and passionate on is that even as a scientist i'm slightly reserved when i hear people banding around numbers that say you must have x percentage versus y percentage yeah exactly that, that that's that's what i'm saying as well that we shouldn't get hung up on the on the percentages absolutely not yeah it is very easy particularly with the internet these days to, to get studies which say we've done 70 percent, 30 percent 90 percent 10 percent done these ratios undoubtedly you will get improvements because the body will react to the stimulus of training the body is a, is a very reactive mechanism. And if you overload it and you give it more of a stimulus than it, than it would normally get in its day-to-day life, then inevitably you will get improvements, which is a good thing. So you will get that if you do a study that does 90-10, you get it if you do a study that does 80-20, or even completely the opposite way around. What we mustn't do is get hung up on the percentages. It's a case of making sure that we have a blend of training and progression that starts to improve the intensity and the volume that you do. Because if you just do the same all the time, then you will stand still. So it's making sure that you gradually overload the body, reduce recovery periods, increase the length of the higher intensity session, uh, increase the speed, the intensity of that higher intensity session. It's those marginal improvements in difficulty that will lead to the improvements in performance. Less getting worried about the, about the percentage, yeah. I 100% agree, and I think that a common mistake that that age group athletes make is uh, some some of them are very much interested in reading everything there is to read and listen to every podcast interview there is about different topics, but then spend too much energy actually planning their training to very minute detail, and that's not really how it works. If you look at the training programs or of somebody like the top runners in the world and and triathletes for that matter they are usually not too complex they're they're very simple and they don't get hung up on on small details in the program they have the big picture with the progression and then they actually execute the training and spend their energy on on executing their training to 100 percent of their ability and uh, whether that's going easy or going hard but but just being performing as they should in that training and that's something that i think that many people miss i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more on that i think um in a sense as a scientist or sports scientist there's often an expectation that i'll say exactly the opposite to that which is you can look at the minutiae you can look at the percentages and and so on it's exactly what you said don't get hung up on the percentages look at a simple training program understand the basic concepts and structure your program accordingly and gradually improve what you're doing. That's the way that you get improvements, not by becoming obsessed with my new shy. Perfect. Uh, let's move on to uh, another question. This one is a bit uh, shorter and much more narrow in scope, and it's how does body weight affect running performance? Quite simply, having extra body weight means the body needs to produce more energy to get you from A to B. Having a lower body weight means less energy. So if you're carrying extra weight, the body will fatigue more rapidly. Your performances will suffer. Your times will be longer. If you have lower body weight, then up to a point, as long as you don't start to lose muscle mass, uh, the body will be lighter uh, and your energy can be used more effectively and efficiently in getting you around a run quicker and with less fatigue. 
Do we have any numbers in terms of, for example, performance decrement per kilogram of body weight? I know there are like rules of thumb that uh, people can find on the internet. So I think that that's a question that that the readers will have. Is is it actually something that that science has has shown that that we can uh, be specific about how how much it affects running? Yeah, you, you can, and I think it, it is very simple. If you look at somebody's oxygen uptake, for example, which is uh, a function of their body weight, and you've got a runner who is, say, for example, 70 kilos, then uh, you just need to do the basic maths on it to work out that if somebody puts on a kilogram in weight, it's likely that their, their VO2 max, maximum oxygen uptake, will decrease by around 1% to 1.5%. So every kilo, depending on what your body weight is, every kilo of extra weight uh, will probably lead to that one to one and a half percent decrease in performance. That kilo will, of course, be proportionately more for a lighter runner. So if you're a runner that's around 50 kilos in weight, then an extra kilo could actually result in around about a 2% deficit in performance. So it's only a small amount, but it's still significant when it comes to the ultimate time that you'll produce. Yeah, it is significant when you when you start doing the math on on the final times in a ten k, yeah. for example, or or even a marathon. It that's when when it becomes really big, and Very and it's interesting to hear yeah. that it, that it is that uh, that simple that that we can just take the uh, the percentage of body weight lost or gained and uh, and then roughly translate that to running performance. Obviously, I, I guess that it's not always a one to one or exact uh, exact uh, correlation, but but as a guideline. It is very much a guideline because, of course, what, what it's always hard to do is to control the state of training that an individual is in. And the other factor is that sometimes if people have gone through a weight loss process, um, they may well have reduced their calorific intake. So certainly in the short term, it may be that they've got lower muscle glycogen levels. They've got some sort of fatigue from that. So it may well be that that's not immediately translated. But on the whole, that's that's the simplest way of, of doing the calculation may not be 100% accurate, but it does give you a feel uh, for the type of benefit that you would get from losing weight. And, you know, if you think about it, nobody would go and run a marathon carrying a one kilo pack of potatoes with them because they, they know that that would slow them down quite significantly. It's very easy to do that by putting on extra weight. Around 8,000 or so calories will call extra will cause around one kilo of body fat to be stored around the, on the body. That will inevitably slow you down on both short, medium, and long-distance runs. What about age? What do we know about age and how that affects running performance? I think, to keep it succinct, there are, there are two key areas where age affects performance. The first is that we have a condition called sarcopenia, which is where the body, uh, in a sense, naturally loses muscle mass as we get older. Uh, that can reduce strength, which, of course, will, also, will, will very quickly affect running performance. And also from the age of around 25 to 30, we know that our oxygen uptake capacity will also reduce. So you've got the, the double impact of a decrease in oxygen uptake capacity and a decrease in strength. Uh, yes, that will inevitably result in a decrease in performance. You tend to see decreases in, in speed and power before you see a decline in endurance. But I think what's encouraging is that we do know that with age, or sorry, with training, it is possible to offset the physiological declines that we get with age and certainly there is nothing to stop uh, somebody still performing at a very high level well into their 60s, 70s and even 80s. And I've done some calculations where um, I've predicted that in the future, and it may be some time in the future, we could see 80-year-olds running marathons in under three hours uh, and even 
some of the greater improvements in our world records will come from 60, 70 year olds who are producing world records and times that are quite uh, outstanding compared to what we've seen at the moment. So the ability of elite athletes to continue training and performing at a high level uh, is very much part of our physiological capability. It's having the dedication and the right type of training to achieve that. Uh, that is something that we'll, I'm sure we'll see one day in the future. Excellent. Yeah. And I'll, I had a, an episode on this topic on, on the podcast previously. I don't remember off the top of my head what uh, the number was, but I'll link to that in the show notes for the listeners to go and reference where we talked just about how, how age affects performance in triathlon. Uh, but that's really good to get it from the running side and uh, encouraging words, uh, definitely. Yeah, uh, so just, just just to quickly interrupt on that, I think what we also have, haven't have yet seen is the real capability of today's elite runners producing elite times 40 or 50 years from now. Most of the elite marathon times particularly that have been produced by 70 and 80-year-olds are people who were club standard runners in their youth um, and, and they've decided to, in a sense, take up the sport more competitively as they've got older. If perhaps one day we see the likes of a Dennis Kimetto continue to train and to perform at the highest level injury-free into their 60s, 70s and 80s, I think we would see then some really phenomenal improvements in world best times for uh, many of the distances at veterans level. Yeah, Magdalena Boulay is an interesting example, although she obviously does ultra running, so it's hard to compare times, but she is one that has uh, been an elite runner, uh, Olympic medalist, winner maybe i'm not quite yeah. sure in the marathon and, and then continuing to run well into her high 40s i believe she is and performing at a very very high level yeah. so so let's see if she takes it back to the road someday and and does a marathon that would be very interesting interesting to see uh finally i want to ask about recovery as well are there any anything that we know about recovery from different types of running sessions and even within the different periods of of training what what would you say about about that as guidelines for the listeners okay well it's pretty very simply if you do longer steady state running so you're running for an hour hour and a half or even longer then the main cause of fatigue will be the loss of energy stores, the loss of muscle glycogen. And that's where your diet, post-exercise diet, is critical to replace the, the carbohydrate, but also importantly, your post-exercise hydration to replace the fluid that will have been lost. If on the other hand, you've done shorter, higher intensity sessions, interval training, polarized training, really high intensity stuff, um, then it's more likely that the lactic acid accumulation and to some extent, muscle soreness, damage to the muscle fibers will be the key um, factor in terms of having to recover. So after higher intensity sessions, it's more a case of um, proper rest, ensuring that your next session is a lower intensity session to give the body chance to recuperate. Perhaps having a blend of carbohydrate and protein in the diet to help to stimulate the, the muscle repair process. Um, and of course, to ensure that you do a proper warm down to keep blood flow going and to dissipate the lactic acid that will have been produced during that higher intensity session. So look at the session. Is it slower intensity, longer duration? Is it high intensity, short duration? And gauge your recovery accordingly. 
Yeah, that, that's really really good advice. The one one thing that I want to ask more about is the cooldown because I actually I made did an episode on the topic of cooldowns. I also did one on warm ups, but and I looked at what different evidence is is out there. Obviously, I'm uh, no scientist any longer, so uh, so I didn't I, I did it more as a journalist than as a scientist. But but still, uh, what what I found was that there really isn't much in the way of evidence for improved performance or recovery from doing cooldowns uh, the only thing is that you may after a really hard session get really dizzy and run the risk of fainting if you don't do a cooldown but that's more for uh, for racing but i may be missing something so so you can correct me on on that but but the way i've been going is to more and more reduce minimize the the relevance of cooldowns because i just didn't see the evidence of them whereas warm-ups is a completely different story i'm very very big on doing proper warm-ups and and actually all the time going in the direction of uh, of putting even more emphasis on the warm-ups but uh, but the cooldowns uh i guess uh, my opinion was different than yours so so can you tell me a little bit more about about that your your take on cooldowns I wish I could correct you, Michael, and say there's a whole body of scientific evidence that says that cooldowns are absolutely critical. You're right, there isn't. I think they are, they in a sense, have more psychological benefit than physiological. Um, what I tend to do is actually just slow down for the last sort of two or three minutes of my training session and see that as part of the cooldown. Um, I would add that because the muscles are warm, there is a, a good opportunity to do some gentle stretching after after a session as part of the cool down. But on the whole, there is no real evidence to show that cool downs are critical. That said, if you've done a very high intensity session where lactic acid levels are high, there may be some benefit in just gradually bringing the body back down to normal so that your heart rate slows down, uh, your cardiac output decreases, and at the same time, you, you start to clear and exhale uh, the lactic acid that's been produced during those few minutes after exercise. But it could be just as simple if you've done, for example, a track session, your cool down could be something no more complex than picking up your kit from the side of the track and walking slowly back to the changing rooms. Uh, I think sometimes we we overemphasize the role of cool down, but I would also totally agree that warm down, that warm up, I should say, is, is vital, particularly as you get older. And I think as we get older, um, the need to warm up, to generate blood flow, to increase muscle temperature so that the muscles are more pliable and less likely to, to injure, to increase the um, the pliability of the tendons and the ling- ligaments to get the, the um, synovial fluid more, lu- more lubricated and warm within the joints is an important part of that preparation phase. So warm up, absolutely yes. Cool down, more psychological and physiological. Yeah, absolutely agree. Agree with that, and and that's the way I I do it as well. Like either doing the cool down as a part of the the final part of the main set or whatever you want to call it, or just as part of returning to day to day life, like walking around in the kitchen preparing that yeah. that recovery smoothie or whatever it is can can be part of a cool down because you're still staying moving, walking, and and all those sorts of things. So so just a gradual return to to day to day life that includes some moving around, but not necessarily having to run. Uh, too slow case on the track uh, in in a very structured manner and that's uh, and that's i think we are very much on the same page about yeah, finally definitely. let's talk a little bit about your other book which is actually the newer one mm. uh, run smart what, what's that about and and what can interested readers find if they if they decide to go out and get that one 
Okay, I, I think first and foremost, although it's a science-based book, I think if, if many of your listeners are real science techies, they might be slightly disappointed. It, it's really aimed at beginners. It's a beginner's marathon running book that uses science to help beginners make the journey from the start to the finish of a 26.242 kilometre marathon uh, easier. I've done lots of work at the London Marathon for many years advising runners before the race itself, and it's always amazed me how desperate they are for information and how without being disingenuous, how little some of them know about the demands of the race that they're about to enter. Um, so the book is designed to help people, in many cases, I think, complete their first marathon. It's a collection of chapters on uh, the science of um, preparing, the science of race day, the science of nutrition, hydration, and so on. It's called Run Smart, uh, and I, I see it almost as an ideal um gift stocking filler Christmas present for the person who's about to do their first marathon who just wants to get some advice on how to make the training, the day itself and the recovery that little bit easier. Yeah, I know somebody that I could could give it to for sure. I, I got a, <laughs> a WhatsApp message from somebody a week or so ago and he had had to throw in uh, the towel in, in a marathon that he was running. It was his first standalone marathon. He was a triathlete. But uh, he had been training once a week, very randomly, if if once a week. And then the message that I got is, hey, I had to throw in the towel. You, you can read about it on my blog here about the details. But what I want to ask is, should I get a stride power meter because uh, to to be able to better run? And I said, no, you should learn how to train properly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so... <laughs> So for somebody like him, I, I, I could definitely see myself giving giving that book to, yeah, to him yeah. for Christmas. And I think it's also a case of resetting your, goal, resetting your goals as well. And I've often said if it's your first marathon, the aim is to, to complete, not compete. And I think that the difficulty is when you've got people and your, your friend sounds like he's probably a highly competitive individual. They're only satisfied if they can run a marathon in a, in a really fast time. Um, for your first one, it's a case of almost parking that and just saying, I'll get the marathon under my belt. I'll get the experience of the marathon done. And if it takes me four hours or two and a half hours, I'll still be pleased with the performance of, of covering, the, covering the distance. Absolutely. The marathon is a, is a different beast. Yeah. Uh, I have three rapid fire questions for you before we close off this interview, starting and take 15 seconds or so to, to answer these questions very, uh, very shortly and concisely. What's your favorite book, blog or resource, uh, and uh, not including your own, own books, which we'll obviously link to in the show notes, but other books, blogs or resources related to running or endurance sports? This might sound a bit left of field, but it's actually Shackleton's book on his uh, Antarctic expeditions, because that is literally all about endurance. And if you read that book and you look at the endurance, the mental resilience that he and his crew endured, then that makes running, in a sense, not insignificant, but it makes you realise how you can focus the body on getting the best from it that you possibly can and surviving adversity. Fantastic read, and it really does focus you on the mental uh, resilience that the human body has at times of adversity. I really like that answer, and if somebody wants to give, give me a book for Christmas, then I, I just put that on my wish list. <laughs> What's your favourite piece of gear or equipment? I'm afraid I'll be very simplistic. I've got a running vest that I've run about 10 or 12 London marathons in. It's a lightweight, thin vest. It's not high tech. It's nice and simple. It lets me stay cool. It, uh, it allows the sweat to uh, evaporate. Um, it's nothing high tech. It's a simple piece of running kit. Running vests have been around years and I think they've got a long uh, life ahead of them. 
And finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your running career specifically? I was a very good runner in my youth, uh, but when we had children back in the mid-1990s, I'm afraid I let my running slip for a few years with the demands of bringing up two, two young girls. I wish, looking back, that I kept my running going because although I restarted five or six years later, I have to say I did find it very tough to get back to the levels that I was at uh, pre-children. So at least keeping ticking over and, and carrying on racing uh, is something that I wish I'd done when the children were younger. Right. And uh, if the listeners want to learn more about you, you're on Twitter with the handle at SportProfBrewer, and that will also be linked up in the show notes, of course. Is there yes. anything else that you want to mention before we close off this interview? Only, I think, to say, Michael, that, again, just to re-emphasize, although I am a scientist and although sports science plays an increasing role in running, it's not just about science. The human body... Um, isn't just about science, it's, it's quite subjective at times. And it's a case of blending science with how you feel and keeping things simple that will lead to improvements. Don't get hung up with everything that you read because there's lots of different opinions, lots of different studies. Uh, so only um, don't, don't keep chopping and changing, keep things simple, use some science, but also use some common sense as well. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to end this interview. Uh, thank you so much, uh, John. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Professor John Brewer. It was really great talking to you. Not at all. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it. I think that my key takeaways from this episode, as we discussed, is not to be really bound to any single number that you may see, even though they can provide guidelines, but don't use that as gospel that you really, really need to stay strictly to when it comes to things like, for example, intensity distributions. The reason that I brought that up and discussed it quite a bit is that I get tons of questions about it and the thing is that especially for age groupers that train a very limited amount then you really can't apply the science from uh, from elite athletes that train 20 or 25 or 30 hours per week on those age groupers that train six or eight hours per week so so that was a really really good takeaway and also the running form one is uh, one that that i always say to people that there are a few things that that are no-gos that we need to correct like overstriding i consider being a no-go and i think that science supports that if you overstride you need to correct that and start landing with the foot beneath your hip but uh, but there are maybe a couple of other no-gos but other than that running form is very individual so uh, never never try to go into too minute detail and uh, and really transform your running form i don't think that's the correct way to do it it will you will adapt a running form naturally just by running put simply all right, you can find the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes on thattriathlonshow.com as usual. The next episode on Monday the 4th of December 2017, if you're listening way in the future, is an episode that you do not want to miss. It's a solo episode on strength training for triathletes and endurance athletes. I will go through, talk through what we know about it and from science, what, what the evidence says, but also what the application is. So I will talk about how I structure the strength training of the athletes that I coach and uh, that will be a really good one. Strength training is one of my uh, 
biggest interests within triathlon so i'm looking forward to that and uh, yeah i hope that you'll come join me in that episode if you find that triathlon show to bring value to your triathlon training and racing, then would you consider helping me spread the word about the podcast by telling your friends about it? That really is one of the best ways, the most direct way really, to to help spread the word about the show. And uh, really it helps it helps the podcast a lot to get more more airballs to it and it helps me a lot as well because it uh, it validates what I'm doing here when I see that more and more listeners are starting to listen and you can help with that so I would highly appreciate if you tell your friends about that triathlon show thank you again to precision hydration for sponsoring this episode remember to take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com you have a link down in the episode description and on the show notes page that will give you a personalized hydration strategy for your next race. Use the discount code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, for 15% off any products. If you want more information on why sodium and adequate sodium intake for your sodium loss is so critical for endurance performance, check out their blog post titled Why Sodium is Crucial to Your Performance. I'll link to that in the show notes as well and in the episode description in your podcast app. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.